0: Happy Saturday, everybody. Today's classic is a much-requested listener favorite. It's the Radium Girls.
1: And this episode came out in September of 2011 from past hosts Sarah and Dublina, and it was rerun about a year later. And since that time, the Radium Girls have made headlines a couple of other times. In 2014, one of the last surviving Radium Girls, Mae Keen, died at the age of 107. And Mabel May-Williams, another of the last radium girls, died in 2015 at the age of 104.
0: So let's get to it. Welcome to
1: Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And we're just gearing up for our long Labor Day weekend, but by the time this episode airs, it will already have passed, and a labor-related memorial should have been unveiled in a town called Ottawa, Illinois. And the memorial, which was unveiled Friday, September 2nd, is a statue of a woman holding flowers in one hand and paintbrushes in the other. And it's meant to symbolize the women who worked for the Ottawa-based Luminous Processes Factory. And there they painted watch and clock dials in the early 20th century. And they were women who ended up getting serious radiation poisoning as a result of their jobs. And I'm not sure how much national media attention this memorial and its unveiling are going to receive. It was conceived of by a young lady named Madeline Piller, who actually came up with this idea for the memorial after doing a junior high history project. How about that? Yeah, her dad is a sculptor. And she did this project and kind of couldn't get this woman out of her head and proposed the idea of doing a memorial to them. And they raised all this money. But We're not sure. I haven't seen that many news stories about it. I just randomly kind of stumbled upon it. But the story of the women who came to be known as the Radium Girls actually became a media
3: sensation in the 1920s and the 1930s. Yeah, they certainly deserve a monument. And it wasn't just an Illinois-based story either, because workers at factories in Connecticut and New Jersey were really in the same boat. In fact, it was a story coming out of New Jersey that first brought this issue. This radium poisoning issue to the public's attention in the first place. And that's the story that we're going to focus on today in the podcast. And we're going to just sort of take a look at the historical circumstances and working conditions that led to these women getting radiation poisoning in the first place, because you're probably going to wonder pretty quickly how something like this could happen. Yeah, and we're also going to take a look at how they came to be known as the Radium
2: Girls and their struggle for justice that led to some workplace reforms in the end. So kind of try to put a positive spin on what is ultimately a very sad story. But before we can talk about the Radium Girls, we need to take a closer look at the element that's at the heart of their story, and that is, of course,
3: radium. Literally, the element. Very good pun, Dablina. So we're going to be talking about radium, of course, but that also gives us the chance to talk about one of our most frequently requested podcast subjects, Polish-born scientist and Nobel Prize winner Marie Curie. And this isn't a podcast on her. It's not a profile on her. But she is an important character in it, mostly because she discovered radium in 1898. And radioactivity was still pretty new at that time. It was not well understood. The German physicist Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen had just discovered x-rays back in 1895. And just a few weeks after that discovery, Henri Becquerel had identified radioactivity during experiments with uranium salts. So when Marie Curie made her discovery, all of this stuff was kind of floating around and kind of new science. Yeah, and people were really
2: fascinated by it. And Curie was one of them. She was really fascinated, especially by Becquerel's findings, because not that much attention were given to them at the time. So she started experimenting with pitch blend, which which is a shiny tar-like byproduct of mining that eventually led she and her husband, Pierre, to isolate two new chemical elements, polonium and the one we're focusing on today, which is radium. It was radioactive. It seemed to pulse with spontaneous energy. And the other cool thing about radium was that it glowed in the dark.
3: Yeah, that certainly seemed to be a a selling point for it, as we'll see. But by this time, people had started to realize that even though radiation was invisible, it did have strong powers. They could cause injury. Scientists were exposed to it in large doses and they suffered from skin burns and hair loss. So clearly this element could do something. But this also clued physicians into the possibilities that radiation held for treating cancer. Something this powerful could potentially fight something that was hurting people as well as burn them or injure them.
2: Yeah, so it was that potential, and along with those kind of magical, glowy properties that it had, that gave it this reputation as a wonder substance pretty much from the get-go. People thought it could cure everything from arthritis to diabetes, not just cancer, and an entire radium industry grew out of that belief some form of the word radium was actually incorporated into a lot of brand names. Whether the products actually contained radium Just or not, which I in. thought was funny, <laughs> yeah. But a lot of products had radium added in them, including toothpaste, hair tonic, bath salts, lotions, heating pads, and mail pouches. You've got to explain what mail pouches. Do you know what are? a mail pouches? I know
3: now because you told me, but it's it's your job to tell listeners.
2: It they were condoms, so, so those also contained radium, or some did. With radium. But radium or radon-laced water was probably one of the most widely touted products and it was called liquid sunshine because people thought that this was some sort of magical elixir that could like extend your youth and make you healthy and one brand in particular was called Radathor you read about this a lot it was a popular brand of radioactive water and doctors would give it to patients as a tonic it so really
3: doesn't sound good it, does it it
2: doesn't sound good to us now but maybe it would have back then i well, don't know
3: and you and i were talking about it it makes you kind of concerned what are we drinking or consuming now that will sound as horrible and ridiculous as radium-laced tonic in the future. I mean, gosh.
2: Yeah, I kind of don't want to know. Maybe I should. But but radium's use went beyond just personal and health products too, right? In 1902, radium was isolated into pure metal, and Marie Curie was involved with that as well. And soon after, American electrical engineer William J. Hammer created A radium-treated paint, which had the trade name undark, that when applied to things would make them glow in the dark. So this was used on scientific instruments and things like that. It was expensive to do, but it became really significant during World War I, especially when people realized the advantage of applying this to military instruments. Yeah,
3: you're in a dark trench and you can actually read your watch or read your instrument.
2: Exactly. So that's where our story about the radium girls really begins.
3: So between 1917 and 19... 29, hundreds of young women got jobs applying radium-treated paint to watches, to aircraft controls, clocks, and compass faces in factories in states like Illinois and New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, even Long Island. Factories were owned by a big corporation, even though they were in different parts of the country. It was the U.S. Radium Corporation. And for the young women getting these jobs, it seemed like a pretty great opportunity, mostly because it paid a lot better than other factory jobs at the time, more than three times as much. It was about $18 per week instead of $5 per week. They got paid about a penny and a half per dial they painted, and they would paint about 250 dials a day. So uh, a a pretty good job. And the work didn't seem too treacherous either, at least for the time. The women sat together at these long tables with racks of dials, and they would uh, paint the faces sitting next to them. Them and um, mix up this concoction of glue and water and radium powder into a glowing greenish white paint and then use their little camel hair brushes to apply the paint to the dial numbers. So it sounds kind of social of artistic in a way, a a pretty nice job.
2: Yeah. As they were painting these dial numbers, though, after a few strokes, the brushes, those camel hair brushes they were using, would lose their shape. And the women couldn't paint as accurately. So their supervisors had kind of a solution for this. They told them to point the brushes with their lips. And according to an article in the journal American History, some women later quoted their bosses as saying, quote, not to worry, if you swallow any radium, it'll make your cheeks rosy. So, Grace Fryer was one of 70 young women who started working at a factory like this in Orange, New Jersey, in the spring of 1917. And later, about the brushes, she said, quote, I think I pointed mine with my lips about six times to every watch dial. It didn't taste funny. It didn't have any taste. And I didn't know it was harmful.
3: To add to matters, the workers really had fun with this uh, licking the brushes with the radium on it. They'd paint their nails and their teeth to sort of amuse each other and surprise their boyfriends when the lights would go out. Fryer even remembers that after she'd blow her nose... Her handkerchief would glow in the dark with this radium residue, but they'd just all have a good laugh about it, go back to work, keep uh, licking those brushes, and, and keep painting.
2: Yeah, they didn't have any indication that it was hurting them. In 1920, Fryer quit the factory to take a better job as a bank teller, but only two years later, she started having some major problems. Her teeth started falling out, and she developed painful abscesses in her jaw. She got x-rayed and it showed that she had such severe bone decay. The many doctors and dentists that she went to to try to figure out what was was going on, they said that they'd never seen anything like it. They'd never seen bone decay to that degree. In July 1925, one doctor finally suggested that her problems might have been caused by her former job as a dial painter.
3: And I think the delay there is is pretty remarkable. So it was 1922 when she started having these symptoms. Mm -hmm. It's not till 1925 when somebody says, this looks like... It's radium poisoning. And it turned out that Fryer wasn't the only former dial maker having issues. I guess we can just assume that it took that long for word to spread among the medical community what was going on. But at the request of the Orange City Health Department, the National Consumers League, which was an organization that fought for safe workplaces and reasonable wages and decent working hours, started an investigation on these suspicious deaths of four radium factory workers between 1922 1924 so right around that time that fryer is realizing what's wrong with her other people are realizing something's going on here
2: yeah the cause of death for these other four radium factory workers was listed as things like phosphorus poisoning mouth ulcers and syphilis but the factory workers thought that the paint ingredients did have something to do with it so new jersey consumer league chairman Catherine wiley Consulted some experts. She brought in a statistician and she went to Harvard and consulted some people. And she found out when she was talking to people at Harvard that a few years earlier, physiology professor Cecil Drinker had been asked to study the working conditions at U.S. Radium and report back to the company. So somebody had already been looking into this before it even came to their attention. And Drinker found out that pretty much the entire workforce at U.S. radium was contaminated. They had strange blood conditions, and several workers had advanced radium necrosis. So Drinker made suggestions at that point, and as of June 1924, I think that's when his report came out, and he suggested that they make changes that would protect the workers. But Arthur Roeder, who was president of U.S. Radium at the time, he resisted this, and furthermore, he refused to give Drinker permission to publish his findings, saying that Drinker had agreed to confidentiality and that he wasn't
0: allowed to.
2: So it actually turned out later they found out that Roeder had been circulating a false report under Drinker's name. It was basically his report, but it said, oh, there's no harm here. There's no problem with the radium that's used in, in the paint. And, Which
3: is why he didn't want Drinker to publish the real report, exactly. obviously. Exactly.
2: But to be honest, Drinker's report wasn't the only thing out there that indicated that radium was a hazard. There were there was also scientific and medical literature, some of it dating back as far as 1906, that contained plenty of information about the hazards of radium even one of us radium's own publications and that's the part i think is really surprising it, it was distributed to hospitals and doctors offices and it contained a section with dozens of references this report was called radium dangers-injurious effects and so it was out there they knew what was going on the entire time
3: from the same company encouraging their workers to moisten their brushes yeah
2: and to i guess to be fair we don't know that the supervisors on the floor actually knew that there were dangers but
3: it became pretty clear that companies As a whole, did though. So, the Consumer League's Wiley tried to get U.S. Radium to pay for the medical expenses for Fryer and for the other workers who were ill, but the company insisted that Radium was not to blame. And they went beyond that, though, and launched this campaign of misinformation. They tried to tarnish the women workers' reputations by saying that the problem wasn't Radium; it was actually that they had syphilis. And in 1925. When Fryer started exploring radium as a cause for her illness, a Columbia University doctor named Frederick Flynn, who said that he was referred to her by friends, asked to examine her and he found her health to be, quote, as good as my own. Later, though, Fryer found out that Flynn wasn't even a medical doctor, he was an industrial toxicologist on contract with U.S. Radium. So it became pretty clear that almost from the get-go, U.S. radium had been acting um, shady about covering up the effects of of the element.
2: Yeah. And we should say that although Flynn wasn't a doctor, I mean, as you pointed out earlier, it took a long time for doctors to kind of, I mean, you mentioned catching on to the fact that these women had had radium poisoning. Yeah, their teeth falling out had something to do with it. Right. But I think part of it was also that They didn't want to – radium had so much promise. They didn't want to admit that maybe this wonder element that they had found also had some negative effects because they were afraid it would keep people from accepting the positive effects that radium could have in medicine. Yeah, just
3: give it a bad name essentially.
2: Right. So Fryer did decide to sue U.S. radium in 1925, but it took her two years to find an attorney who was willing to take her case. On May 18, 1927, though, Raymond Barry, who was a young Newark attorney, took the case on contingency and filed a lawsuit in a New Jersey court on her behalf. And pretty much right away, four other women with severe medical problems joined the lawsuit. Their names were Edma Hussman, Catherine Schaub, And two sisters also, Quinta McDonald and Albina Larisse. And as the case started to grow into a huge media sensation, the press in the U.S. and Europe soon dubbed the five women the radium girls. So that's where the name comes from.
3: So the radium girls were looking for $250,000 in compensation for medical expenses and pain for each of them. But first, there was this legal obstacle in New Jersey's law that they had to get by. It was a two-year statute of limitations. But the lawyer, Raymond Berry, argued that the statute applied from the moment the women learned about the source of their problems, not from the date they quit working for the factory, since As we've discussed, that took quite some time. He also said that U.S. Radium's campaign of misinformation was the reason the women weren't informed in the first place and the reason why they didn't take legal action within the statute of limitations. So maybe uh, Radium's fake doctor sort of complicated matters here.
2: Definitely. While this was going on, though, medical examiners kept looking into the situation. Medical examiners from New Jersey and New York, they investigated the suspicious deaths of the plant workers. And in the process, a deceased sister of two of the radium girls, McDonald and Larice, was exhumed on October 16th, 1927. Her name was Amelia Maggia, and she had also worked at the plant and her bones were found to be highly radioactive. Her former dentist had tipped them off on it. He actually had removed part of her jaw soon before she died because it had deteriorated to that point. And he kind of suspected that radium poisoning might be part of the issue, radiation poisoning. And so they exhumed the body and found that he was correct.
3: Yeah, so these investigations, the exhumation and all of that and the legal maneuverings took up quite a bit of time, obviously. And in fact, it took up so much time that the first hearing didn't take place until January 11th. 1928. And by that point, the women's health had really deteriorated. Some of them couldn't even raise their arms to take the oath. Uh, The two sisters we mentioned were bedridden. Grace Fryer had lost all of her teeth and couldn't sit up without using a back brace, definitely couldn't walk. Um, But the severity of their conditions really affected people in the courtroom when they did testify. When those who were able did testify, uh, people in the courtroom were said to have wept when they when they watched them.
2: Just an example of one of their testimonies, Edna Husman's testimony included details about her financial troubles, which were caused by the medical bills that she had. And she said, quote, I cannot even keep my little house, our bungalow. I know I will not live much longer, for now I cannot sleep at night for the pains. So, of course, everyone was fascinated with the story, and it was everywhere. Even Marie Curie heard about it, and she was really surprised to learn how the factory workers had been handling radium on, on the job. Referring to the radium girl, she said, quote, I see no hope for them. My experiments with radium convinced me that if a poison is taken, if the poison, sorry, is taken internally, it is practically impossible to destroy it. So, you know, just an aside here, many of you may know this, but Curie herself died in 1934 of complications resulting from long-term radium exposure also.
3: But even then, with with Curie saying that she saw no hope for them, with the radium girls visibly deteriorating and public sympathy pouring in, U.S. radium didn't hesitate to try to still delay the legal proceedings as much as they possibly could. So after a hearing in April, the judge granted the defense a five-month adjournment, and Barry tried to remind the judge that the women might not last those five months, not survive until September. And he even found lawyers with cases that were going to be tried in less than a month who were willing to switch dates with him. But U.S. Radium absolutely refused, said that their witnesses were not going to be Ready, they weren't going to be available until that five-month window was was up.
2: Yeah. So what ended ultimately helping them move the trial up was the power of the press, in particular Walter Littman of the New York World. And he helped kind of speed things along. The New York World was a really influential paper at the time, and Lippmann had written a number of editorials about the radium girls. One he wrote on May 10, 1928 was particularly scathing. He called the delay a, quote, damnable travesty of justice and said that if ever a case called for prompt adjudication, it is the case of five crippled women who are fighting for a few miserable dollars to ease their last days on earth. And those editorials, combined with the public outrage they caused and the efforts of Barry and others, all together helped convince the New Jersey court system to change the trial date to early June 1928. But just days before the trial, the Radium Girls ended up settling out of court. They got $10,000 each, coverage of their medical expenses, and a $600 annuity until death. So much less than they were hoping for in the end.
3: Yeah, but at least it was something before they passed away because some of them did start dying from their um, condition pretty quickly. After that, McDonald died in 1929 at age 34. Fryer died at age 34, and Schaub died at age 30 in 1933. And Hussman died in 1939 at age 37. One lived for... Quite some time after it, Larisse, she died in 1946 at age 51. But it's a really sad story any way you look at it. But there is a silver lining, the reason why we're covering this for Labor Day. They did make some strides for workers. Industry safety standards were enhanced, and the Radium Girls set a precedent in case law for the right of individual workers to sue their employers for damages caused by labor abuse. And, of course, it made people
2: aware of the dangers of radium. New tolerance levels were set for workers and for researchers. And uh, as for some of the products that we talked about (laughs) earlier, the FTC issued a cease and desist order against the manufacturer of the product Radithor in 1931. That tonic you would chug, liquid um, sunshine. Exactly, that magical elixir. And they found that it contained enough radium to kill the people who drank it regularly. And of course, the radium girls are not forgotten. There have been poems, books, and plays written about them. And now there's that memorial, too, that we mentioned earlier in Illinois. So
3: So we're speaking from the past, but maybe after this Labor Day weekend, we will go um, check out photos of the unveiling of the memorial and and hope that something like this does get a little press for, for Labor Day weekend.
0: Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
3: This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors